You are listening to Help for HD Live, the first podcast created for families living with Huntington's and juvenile Huntington's disease. Don't forget to find us on iTunes, Blog Talk, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. You can also search over 500 archived episodes and other projects at helpforhd.org. To watch us in person, find Help for HD TV on YouTube and subscribe and ring the bell for notifications on new content. Help for HD Live is going on air in five, four, three, two. Hello, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in to Help for HD Live. This program is made possible because of Teva Pharmaceuticals, Neurocrine Biosciences, the Griffin Foundation, and the Hereditary Disease Foundation. I'm your host, Lauren Holder, and today we have a very special show. It is the first time that we have somebody from Genentech coming on to talk with us about uh, the drug that they are um well, that they did in Generation HD1 and that they're currently um, rolling for Generation HD2, Tominersen. Um, and I am really excited to have Rita from Roche Genentech on with us, Rita Gandhi. Um, I'm going to have her just introduce herself really quick um, so you guys know a little bit more about her. Thank you so much for joining me today, Rita. Lauren, thank you for having me. It's I can't I can't even express how excited I am to be here today to be able to talk to you and all your listeners. Um, and I, I'd love to briefly introduce myself. I'm uh, Rita Gandhi. I'm a movement disorder neurologist by training, and um, I trained at Georgetown uh, for my movement disorders, and then was uh, moved to Huntington, West Virginia, where I practice at Marshall University. And I was treating Parkinson's disease patients and Huntington's disease patients there. And as you mentioned, I am an employee of Genentech, which is an affiliate of Roche. So I'm super excited to be able to talk to you today about Tom and Nursen and our new study, Generation HD2. So very excited. Very excited to have you and to learn more. Um, before we get into the actual drug and the clinical trial stuff. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself and why you continue to help with HD research? Oh my gosh, absolutely. Um, I think as everybody knows, Huntington's disease is a really, really special community. It's, um, as people say, it's unlike anything or any group of people people have ever treated or been around. And once you start taking care of Huntington's disease patients, you're just hooked. And I think it has to do with just um, just the community and the level of sincerity and knowing that there's a disease that affects generations and seeing the sacrifices people make. Um, so once I started to treat Huntington's disease patients, it was just impossible not to stop in some capacity. Um, I think treating patients to me was super, super, um, it, I mean, it, you know, it's, it changes your life. It changes how you see the world, but then being able to go then into sort of drug discovery and then taking it in the next level to say, okay, now what are things that we can do to try to bring drugs to the market that would help Huntington's disease is really kind of what got me and why I'm still kind of here. I don't know if that's helpful, but. It is. I mean, I, I think it's great um, to have somebody who, basically took the passion for HD and, and took it into the world of pharma. And, um, you know, now here we are 
you know, talking about this very important clinical trial. Um, and obviously people are going to see the the title of this show is HD Mythbusters. Um, and I, I really wanted to focus this time, guys, on what tominersen is. Um, there's fear around it, right, because of the clinical trial generation HD1 that halted. Um, and, and that fear has kind of continued, um, especially when it comes to looking at participating in generation HD2. So I really fig figured that today we could get into more of it and, and kind of break up that myth of um, that tominersen is scary. Um, because I, I think this is a really important clinical trial that um, we need to highlight. Um, and so I am going to um, try not to talk as much and let <laughs> Rita talk. So, yeah. but let's let's start with tominersen. It was the first treatment in clinical development that sought to target the underlying cause of Huntington's. Um, so it's not just a symptomatic treatment. How does it work? How is it different yes. from other types of treatment? Yes, absolutely, Lauren. And and I just want to be clear, it, it is uh it is a therapy that works on sort of the genetic material, but it isn't itself a gene therapy. It's what we call an, an ASO or an antisense oligonucleotide. So what it does is it targets both the good protein, which is the wild type Huntington, and that's uh, the wild type is what is important for brain development, but it also targets the bad protein, which is the mutated Huntington protein, which we think is the underlying cause of HD. Um, and so when we think about antisense oligonucleotides, also known as ASOs, right? They're small pieces of sort of genetic material that prevent that production of this bad and good Huntington protein. Um, and that's why um, that's essentially how it works. But you are correct. It is a it isn't a symptomatic treatment, and it's really aimed at treating that underlying disease process and hopefully affecting the course of the disease. One of the things I think is really important to highlight about tominersen is it it is really the only therapy that's shown that has so so far shown to lower that bad mutant Huntington protein, and that was measured in the in the CSF or the cerebral spinal fluid of the of our trial participants. And so when we do give it, um, we do have to give it through a spinal tap so it can actually get into the brain to the areas that we need it to get into to be more effective. Yeah, and I and I think that's great. Obviously, like you mentioned, it's the only thing that has shown to actually lower the bad um, mutant Huntington. Um, so Tominersen was given in clinical trial called Generation HD1. Um, mm -hmm. What happened in Generation HD1 and why has it led to a second clinical trial, um, which we'll be talking about, which is Generation HD2? Yeah, no, good, very good question. Thank you for asking it. So what we realized um, when Generation HD1 stopped, what we realized um, after we looked at the all of the information and the data was that the dose was too high in those participants that were getting the 120 milligram dose every eight weeks or in that two month period. Um, and that led to a, that group having a faster progression, disease progression. Um, but we, what we did find is those individuals that were on the 120 milligrams every 16 weeks or their four months 
progressed about the same as those without the drug, right? They were around the same. Um, and we looked, we're, we're trying to figure out why some of that happened. Um, we found that, well, I want to kind of back up a little bit. I think when after we went back and looked at the data and had a, like a deeper dive into everything, we did find a group of people who did benefit. And these were people who were younger and had less advanced HD population. And we think that they may have done a little bit better because they were able to tolerate that higher dose and they were able to tolerate the medication better overall. So I think it came down to just getting the dose right. You know, I think like in any study or any trial, right, you go in with sort of this hypothesis or this like scientific question. And, um, you know, your goal is to try to figure out what the right dose is. And so you say, okay, well, if you look across the level of all these different dosing we have, we see that this dose made the biggest impact and that's the dose we want to pick, right? And so when we did that, when we did the scientific question, we picked that dose. And then as we were going through the course of the study, we realized, okay, giving this higher dose very frequently probably wasn't, wasn't the right, you know, wasn't the, didn't give the right outcome. But as a process that we were able to go back and look at the data and see, wait, you know, if we can spread out the dose and make it farther and maybe decrease the dose a bit more, I think we could, you know, we could have a good result. And we saw that with the Q16 week or the four month dosing, because those patients, they didn't, they didn't get worse. They stayed about the same as placebo. And so, you know, we, we were happy, we were given that option to really take a look at that. Yeah. And that's, that's a good thing, right? Like that's what you yes. want. You wanted them to stay where they were and not, not get any worse um, at that other um, 16 week. Um, but it's also not uncommon, right? For, for higher doses of things to be kind of not a good thing for the brain, right? Um, it's not just an HD. Um this yeah. is something that you we've actually talked about. I've I've mentioned on other shows, like when we compare to cancer drugs, um, mm -hmm. that you know, when you look at cancer drugs at a certain dose, they're really toxic for your body, but at the right dose, um it treats your cancer. <laughs> so it's the yeah. same idea, and just that you guys were doing this trial and found that this dose given more frequently was just not good for the brain and kind of reached that limit. Yeah. And, and I think that's important because, you know, when we talk about um, why the study failed, people say, oh, or they, there's this idea that, pe that it failed because of safety concerns. Um, but it really was because of lack of benefit or lack of efficacy. And so I think it's important to remember that, you know, first that, that the FDA and the EMA wouldn't allow us to be you know, to go on with Tom and Erskine are, are allowed to be in, you know, in studies if they thought it was unsafe. And, and, you know, we were able to get information. So as we did the study, we said, okay, we learned that, okay, a higher dose wasn't, wasn't the right dose. And I think it's like the same as if you think about taking medications today. So like, if you take Tylenol, right, you know, Tylenol at its regular dose will help your pain. But if you take too much Tylenol, like if you take four grams of Tylenol, it can cause liver failure, right? So there's analogies that you can use even in today where 
Um, it's about understanding what that dose is and making sure you get the right dose. And so as we start to get more information, we still really strongly believe that Tom Anderson is a great therapy. We have lots of clinical data in a lot of number of patients. You know, um, the phase three study had over 800 patients in it. Um, I mean, so far in totality of the number of patients that have been on the drug. And so this is our opportunity to really, we, we, we get to look at the safety database all the time. And so there's nothing in it that tells us this is not a safe drug, but we just need to, we just know that at lower doses, right, and more frequent, that that's where hopefully we're going to see potential benefit and efficacy and maintain its safety. So this has led to, since Generation HD1 halted, this has led to a second clinical trial with Tominersen, which is Generation HD2. And, and after going through all that data and analyzing everything, um, you know, what do we know now that's led to Generation HD2? Yeah, no, great, great, great question. So, so I think the biggest things that we've learned from the study are one that there's a, a I guess a, a subgroup population or a, a, a another population or a smaller population within the larger population, smaller population of people who are younger with less disease uh, severity that had a potential benefit. And so with that in mind, um, we we have now changed this our new study, our Generation H2 study, is really aimed at looking at people who are earlier in their disease course, so within that prodromal early manifest group, that are younger, age 25 to 50, right? And we're looking at that group to see if there's any potential, if we can replicate that signal or that benefit that we saw when we looked at Generation HD2. With the caveat then, if we get this benefit and we see this benefit that's there, we would have this opportunity to open it up to the wider population. So our goal isn't to necessarily keep it, you know, the medication within this, this smaller population, but that as, as we learn more and more about the data and we get more information, we can replicate this potential signal, this benefit, we want to open it up and be able to look at other populations as well. And so that's our goal. Yeah. And, and I want to point out like, the reason that you're having to do this, right, is because even though you found this benefit in the subgroup, mm -hmm. it's a small number of people and it's not enough to right. just go, oh, well, we found the subgroup and now we can move on. It's you got to be able to, to have a larger group of people. To That's totally what right. it is that that you guys yeah. found. That's exactly right. So in Generation HD1, you know, we asked a scientific question and we didn't get you know, the, the answer we were hoping for. So then we gave us an opportunity to look at all the information, all the data. And so we found in smaller numbers, this smaller group of people, but in order for us to be able to say that's really a true signal and that's really a true benefit, we have to be able to replicate that with a larger number of patients in another study. So being able to get bigger numbers and to be able to say, okay, now we're having another study to really ask this question that we saw and can we, can we then replicate that? And so that is the purpose of doing the second study. This current study is for us to be able to say, now we're going to really ask it in a scientific way and test it in a larger group or group, a larger group of individuals. And you're not doing the same dose as generation HD1. As you mentioned, you're going to be doing a lower dose. Um, Correct. And 
I mean, are you going to be doing at the at the same eight week, 16 week? Or are you focusing just on 16 weeks? How is that working? Yeah, no, great question. So um, yes, because as we mentioned, we did find this group of individuals that did do better. Our goal is to do, what we're doing in Generation HD2 is we're looking at 60 milligrams and a hundred milligram dosing group every 16 weeks or four months. And I think that's important because, you know, when we think about the differences of the two studies, right? It also makes it um, much, it's going to be less burdensome. So one is, as we mentioned, we're going with a lower dose of either 60 milligrams or 100 milligrams every 16 weeks. And we're going with a, a lower frequency. So we're only doing every 16 weeks. Um, and then in addition, we're also going to have a, a lower number of spinal taps because it's going to be done every four months. So in the first year, there'll be five spinal taps, but in, in, in then the second year, there'll be three spinal taps. It's also smaller studies. So we all are going to have a total of 360 patients versus the 791 that they had in Generation HD1. And the length is also going to be smaller. So it's going to be a 16-month study versus a 25-month study that was in Generation HD1, but it will have something called a common closed design. So that means that everybody will be in the study for the duration until the last person's last visit. And I think that's important too, because that's part of the reason why we want to really kind of, um, you know, get through recruiting very quickly, because we want to ensure that people, you know, who are on placebo can then get into beyond drug as soon as the study gets, in, you know, is finished and, and we move forward. We also have a fewer clinic visits. So it'll be eight visits versus 25 visits that were in generation HD1. And we're gonna have fewer assessments. So there are only gonna be 30 assessments compared to the 38 assessments that we had in generation HD1. And we're not including any digital assessments at home um, because we realized that was super burdensome for patients. And so our studies really geared towards making sure we can get all the information and the data we need and also being less burdensome for patients. Um, one of the really things I'm excited about what you just said and, and the fact that um, fewer clinic visits I think is great. Um, fewer uh, samplings of a CSF, um, which I wanna go back to because the importance of CSF um, and why you collect it, obviously. Um, I wanna talk about NFL because that's a huge yes. part of this. Um, so could you go back and kind of explain um, NFL and, and what Toma yes. shows and what it, Generation HD1 really kind of showed the, the data? Absolutely. So NFL stands for neurofilament light chain, and it's a biomarker, and it's a marker of neurodegeneration. And I think this is really important because um, he, NFL, with people who have Huntington's disease, NFL will increase over time as disease progresses. So that's why it tells us a little bit about the trajectory of the disease, or it's a marker of neurodegeneration. Um, I know a lot of people kind of consider it a safety biomarker, and I and I kind of do want to talk about it because I think it you know we really don't know a lot about what NFL how it what it does. It's very sort of nonspecific, but you can't really think of it in terms of safety. It's more of a more of a progression progression model, um, and I because I think that's super important. But you know I think one of the things um, that people always talk about is when NFL goes up or when NFL goes down, right? And that can sometimes be concerning or cons I guess they, they they sort of think about progression in that way. Like a lot of diseases, 
what we did see in um, Generation HD1 when we looked at not only just the NF NFL data in Generation HD1, but also Gen Extend, um, in people who didn't get the loading dose, because you can, um, as you remember, when we started with the Generation HD1, people got a loading dose and then they maintained on either the Q8 or Q16 week. Well, there definitely were a group of individuals that were placebo that went straight into what we call the Gen Extend or our um, open label extension. And we saw that those individuals that were in Q16, their NFL stayed exactly the same and in some ways even went down. And over time, in both groups in Q8 and Q16 week group, the NFL started to trend downward. And um, when the medication was stopped, the NFL was actually below placebo. And that really helps us, gives us, it, it's very important for us because it shows their, their could be potential benefit. And I think, um, you know, we, we obviously need to, we'd like to continue to study to see what happens in our generation HD2 to see if this could be, you know, replicated or if there's a continuation of that. But I think that's really important for us because, you know, that's one of the reasons why we believe so strongly in Tom Nursing, because, I mean, that kind of information with, you know, clinical data and further data will give us an, a, a, a reason to move forward, a path to move forward and looking at the sort of HD patients. Yeah, because it's showing what we want to see, right? Like it's showing a trending yeah. down even below placebo. Um, yes. And and that's ultimately what we want to see. We just need to be clear that um, these are potential signals and potential benefits. And so, you know, we can't really speak to any sort of efficacy. We're not saying that this is, it points to efficacy, but that at the end of the day, like this information is the kind of information that helps us to see these signals and then to move forward, to learn more about it and to do more studying to ensure that what we're seeing is, you know, that continues to occur. Right. And, and as somebody in the HD community who, you know, these are the things we want to see to make sure that participating in Generation HD2 is feasible and not something that's going to make us worse. Um, so that data is good. Like that's, that's what we want to see. And I'm happy um, that you guys have really gotten to delve into that. And I think um, the NFL stuff is just so amazing. Cause as you mentioned, this biomarker for HD, which again, is not something we've had. This is fairly uh, new for us in the community to have NFL as this biomarker um, that shows disease progression. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm really excited uh, to see this being used and to see that it worked, that you were able to track it going down um, and all of that, um, all very exciting stuff. Um, anything else about Generation HD2 that's maybe different from Generation HD1? I mean, I think the other component too is sort of mo mo moving into that earlier population. So as I mentioned, we're really looking at early manifest and prodromal patients. Um, and I think that's important because, you know, before in Generation HD1, we were just looking at manifest. And so I think, you know, we, we've we heard, we're sort of looking at the science and talking to the community. We understand people are looking to go sooner. And so, you know, even, you know, I, I would like to say that when we think about our prodromal patients, it's only about a fifth of the study itself. So it's a very small population. We're really mainly looking more early manifest, but those are, you know, individuals that have some motor abnormalities. They're still earlier in their course and have some functional decline. 
And so I would just say, um, you know, the there, there's such an importance. We really take all of this so um, meaningfully in terms of the population and, and, and having people get involved in studies. And so it, it means so much to us knowing that HD folks want to be in the study and help the science along. So I would just say that if you're interested in the study, that you should definitely talk to your HD provider and ask them about the study and just be able to find out kind of if you're interested in it, whether or not you'd be a good candidate and you can get further information about the criteria. Because there's a number of inclusion exclusion criteria, um, you know, that has to do with whether or not, you know, what drugs you're on or or where you are in your major, maybe your motor progression or, you know, in, in various things, but those are discussions you could definitely have with your HD provider that can help you. And, um, I, you know, I love that we're going into earlier HD and, and really, um, I, I think the focus has shifted there and so, it's something that's needed to happen. Um, so talking about prodromal, while while it's not obviously all prodromal, it's just a fifth of, of the participants that you guys are looking for, it's a huge part of the community. And, and I think this is an opportunity for those of us who are in that stage to participate. Um, and I think one of the fears has come around, um, and it, it's a fear, I wanna preface this with what the next thing I'm saying. There's this fear that when you participate in a clinical trial, that um, it's basically telling you that you you need a diagnosis, right? You're being diagnosed mm -hmm. for HD. And I think those of us in the community um, who are in this prodromal state um, need to realize that's not what's happening. It's research is catching up to us. And we're finally, they're finally going into the earlier side of HD. And so this isn't a diagnosis. Um, you don't have to be clinically diagnosed to participate, um, which I think is huge. I, I think that's a really big deal. Um, but I also want to point out as somebody who is in a clinical trial, uh, not this one specifically, but in a, another one, um, clinical trials are not meant to diagnose. Um, that's you know, that's, yeah that's not the point of the clinical trial. And so while it's really hard to think, okay, I'm doing these assessments and if I am bad enough, I can get in. I, I think we have to look at it a little bit differently. Um, not that those feelings aren't valid. Um, I don't wanna invalidate feelings for anybody. Um, I felt that myself, I, I have grieved the fact that I have reached this stage, um, but I think that um, we have to look at it in a different way to be able to get past it. And that's, this isn't a diagnosis. This is research catching up to us. And um, this is our opportunity to participate as early as we can at the best point that our brain is right now. Um, and okay. so I really just want to share that with everybody. Um, I, could, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I couldn't I mean, agree more. Yeah. I think, as you mentioned, like, you know, individuals that are prodromal can be included in the study and they don't need a diagnosis of HD to be included in the study. And, and I, and as you said, I think it's important to remember that HD should never be diagnosed for a clinical trial. You never. And that diagnosis should be made in a clinic by your HD physician. And that's independent of any clinical trial. Absolutely. And I also think this is, our time to look at things as 
differently when it comes to diagnosis. Diagnosis, I think everybody kind of has this idea that it's a, a light switch, <laughs> right? You're diagnosed, that's it. Um, there's nothing else that we can do. There's, there's, it's the end, right? It's, we're just going to start getting worse. And yes, progression happens, right? That, but that's happening before diagnosis anyway. Um, that's not how life works. That's not how HD works. Uh, it is not a light switch. Um, you know, it's, it's a spectrum. It is, uh, different and very individual and, doesn't mean life stops. And I think that we really, as we learn more about HD and now as research is catching up, um, we need to remember that and uh, and continue to live with HD rather than acting like we're dying from it because um, that's going to be the key to getting into research now. Uh, you know, especially these things that are treating the underlying cause of HD. Yeah. No, I, I think that's really well said. Absolutely. Definitely. Yes, for sure. Um, so let's um, let's talk a little bit about the inclusion criteria and the exclusion criteria for um, Generation HD2. Sure, sure. Um, so like I said, uh, um, I think the biggest components of the inclusion exclusion criteria is that um, individuals need to be between the ages of 25 and 50. And then they have to be prodromal or early manifest. And, and as I mentioned, you know, prodromal and early manifest is really related to how your physician sort of looks at that. So it's that DCL criteria between, you know, two and three if you're prodromal and the DCL of four if you're early manifest. Um, and I mean, there, there are other things that, you know, like in terms of your independence score and what your total motor score is. But I think... I think the best thing to do is to just to talk to your HD physician to figure out if, if you could be a candidate or not. Um, I do think one of the things that, that I do would like to talk about is just um, whether or not people in generation HD1 who were in the study before, whether or not they could be in generation HD2. And, and because I know it's been a huge question. And so one of the biggest things is that if people, um, if participants that were in Generation HD1 were, in, were on the placebo group, meaning their medication group, and they still fit the criteria for the inclusion exclusion for Generation HD2, they absolutely can be in the study without any problems. But unfortunately, if people were on medication in Generation HD1, either in the Q8 or Q16 week group, they cannot be. And we, you know, we didn't, we, we, didn't make that decision likely. We really sort of thought about it, but you know, when it comes to Tomlinson and looking at the mechanism of how it works, we really wanted to ensure. And just talking to a lot of the experts in the fields and other HD professionals and HD groups, you know, we we realized it came we came to a consensus that we couldn't allow individuals that had been on the drug before to be in this new study because we didn't want anything that could potentially bias any of the data. We really wanted to give this a shot where we had just really clean data where we can look at everything and really make that decision on whether or not um, we're able to replicate the signal and, and see that there's any potential benefit or change. So that's kind of where that came from. So if somebody is in um, another clinical trial that is was not Generation HD1, are they still able to participate or does that exclude them? That's a great question. I think it depends on what kind of treatment it is. Um, I know that there are certain companies um, that have 
uh, sort of non-gene-based therapies that are um, allowing uh, people with ASOS to be on. Um, and so I think it depends on the washout period and also the type of trial that you're trying to be in. I know that there are certain trials, you know, with certain therapies where they're, they're saying if you've been on this therapy, there's been, you know, maybe a permanent change. And so we can't allow you in other studies. I think with ASOS, um, you know, as long as there's been a certain washout period, uh, there are uh, various other studies that are allowing them in. So I think it's it's just to be determined. Just to follow up with the washout period. Um, so when we're talking washout period, it's a period of time to make sure that that drug is no longer in your system. Um, right. And so, it, you know, it could be, I, I'm not sure what it was for Tominersen. Um, I know for another one in the HG community, it's like four or five months. Um, Correct. So I think with, with Tominersen, as, as we're looking through some of the data of Tominersen, it's about a nine month period what we call the washout period, but yeah, it, it just varies. It's, it's the, the way they look at it, it's the number of half-lives for that medication to just be, you know, being broken down and get out of your system. So once they, you know, that study feels like they've looked at the data and they say, okay, we think that, you, you know, this medication is out of your system, then we can consider you for a potentially another study. And that's more likely with a symptomatic treatment. So if you're taking a symptomatic treatment and then you want to participate and you do that washout, there shouldn't be much issue. But when it comes to maybe another gene therapy type treatments, um, it may not be the case and you may not get in for that reason. Correct. But I, I do, I think it's, it's, it's hard because, you know, when we talk about different kinds of therapies, like we mentioned, there's the ASO, which is the Tominersen therapy. And then there's um, other sort of gene modification and then gene therapy and gene therapy is, is different. It's usually like a surgical procedure where they, you know, they're like actually putting in, um, within the brain. And so each one is going to have their own sort of, uh, process or protocol with ASOs. It's just sort of a fragment, um, of where we're changing and we're redu reducing the amount of protein that's being produced. So it's not like you're typical gene therapy where we're changing the genes in the brain, right? And so for that reason, it is um, considered not, it's not a symptomatic therapy. It's a little right. bit past the sympathetic, is uh, symptomatic, but there is still a potential where patients may be able to be on other, other therapies when that washout period goes on. But like I said, it's so hard for us to talk about because it depends on that sponsor and, and then and that their study and what they're doing and how they're sort of looking into what their criteria would be. So it's it's hard for us to say that you know every uh, study will allow it. It depends on on that um, company and what what their what their therapy is. And I just want to go back and explain to the community as well, just in case. So when we're talking about symptomatic versus gene therapy or um, or ASOs. So when I'm talking about a symptomatic treatment, obviously we're all thinking, well, it's going to treat symptoms, but a symptomatic treatment is when it, it's specifically treating symptoms like the chorea, right? Mm -hmm. Like those drugs are considered symptomatic treatments. And when we're looking at ASOs and gene therapies, it's actually treating the underlying cause of HD. Um, so yes, it's going to make you better, because it's treating the underlying cause, but it's not a symptomatic treatment where it's just treating symptoms. Um, and that's yeah. why it, you guys have the exclusion criteria that you do, mm -hmm. um, you know, and it's a little more strict because um, you're treating 
on a much larger scale, you're treating the disease itself. Yeah. So the underlying cause, and you're absolutely right. Yeah. Symptomatics are just treating the symptoms. So they don't really affect the disease course. It's just the symptoms. Whereas these other sort of therapies may alter some aspect within the underlying genetic cause of the disease. So that's correct. So um, I just wanted to, to make sure that I made that clear because um, for those who are looking to potentially get into this, especially if you're prodromal um, or that early manifest stage and you have participated in a clinical trial like I have, um, you know, look at look at whether or not it was symptomatic, um, look at what their criteria was. And, you know, I would ask those questions, but then I would also um, go and talk with your physician about how to proceed, right? Like this is, this is something there's exclusion and inclusion criteria. Um, for those who are not currently going to an HD physician, where could people go to find more information on the clinical trial sites and um, being able to participate? Oh my God. Awesome question. Yes. So I think, you know, if, if you want to learn more about generation HD2, one is to, um, you know, and you don't have a generation H or you don't have a HD specialist, you can call the Genentech trial information support line. It's called TISL. And um, it's the number is 888-662-6728. And I can say it again too, in, just, in case it's, um, I said too fast, but it's 888-662-6728. And that line is awesome because they'll give you information about the study, but they'll also tell you where a site is located near your area, or the closest site is, so that you can, you know, call that site or even go there to ask more questions to see if you could be um, a potential, you know, for the study. Um, and I'll make sure to include that as well on the show page and on our social media posts so people can easily access it. Um, obviously, people can go to clinicaltrials.gov as well, um, and I'll include that information. Um, <clears throat> but if I, I want to make sure that if anybody has questions about this, like, please feel free to reach out to me. Um, I'm happy to also get you in touch with whoever you need to talk to. If you've got more questions, um, you know, I, I know how scary it is sometimes to reach out and to talk to somebody else who, um, who participates in stuff and, you know, kind of get feedback. It makes it a little bit easier. So please feel free to reach out to me, happy to answer questions or to get you to the right person. If you've got more questions, um, you know, that's, that's why I'm here. Um, Rita, thank you so much for coming on and yeah. just talking about Generation HD1, HD2, um, Toma Nursing, and really kind of delving into that. Um, I truly appreciate you taking the time. Oh, thank you, Laura. Thank you. These clinical trials, not only Genentech's, uh, Roche Genentech's clinical trial, but any of these gene therapy type things are a big deal. And um, as they start catching up to us in this prodromal phase, um, it, I think it's really important to really look into this and, and ask yourself, is it worth the risk? Because this is our, these are our lives. Um, so definitely, if you have questions, if you know, you want to talk about it more, please come to me. I am happy to talk about this all day. It's something, 
again, I deal with day in, day out, just like you guys. So happy to talk with you about it um, and give my opinions or give you information, reach out to somebody. Um, I know there are others in the community who are very willing to do that as well. Um, again, for Roshan Genentech, you can go to the information support line um, to get information and also find a site. Um, one of the really good benefits of talking to a, an actual site is their coordinators. Um, the coordinators are very informed on the trials, um, not only this one, but all. And so I highly recommend if you're looking into clinical trials that you actually talk to a site coordinator um, because they're going to be able to give you pros and cons and, and all the information that you need that you're not going to be able to get anywhere else. So um, again, happy to contact, uh, connect you with, with those people if you need it um, because we have some really good site coordinators that um, are truly dedicated to HD. Um, so yeah, that's that's all I've got for you on my part. Sorry, I talked so much here at the end. Um, but again, thank you so much, Rita, for coming on and sharing all this information. Well, thank you for having me, Lauren. And uh, yeah, if you have any questions, you know, we're, there's always somebody at Genentech where she's happy to answer those. Thanks again for listening, guys. Um, I hope that you found this helpful and it kind of eases your mind for those who, um, who are going to the Help for HD Symposium. I can't wait to see you guys. That is coming up in October and I am really excited. Um, and just make sure that you are following Help for HD Live every week for a new show. Um, if you are interested in participating in the HD Uncut series and sharing your story, um, it is totally for the HD community, whether you are gene positive, gene negative, symptomatic, um, caregiver, whatever, it is your turn to come on, share your story, and it is completely uncut and uncensored, um, and I want to have you on. So please feel free to reach out to me. My email is lauren at helpforhd.org. And until next time, guys, take care and love you. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to visit www.help4hd.org and sign up for our email newsletter to stay up to date on all that is going on at Help for HD. Get social with us and like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and subscribe to Help for HD TV on YouTube and ring the bell for notifications.